Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello, everybody, and welcome to February's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. You're most welcome from wherever you are tuning in in the world. So, how's your January been? Well, I have to confess, it hasn't got off to the greatest of starts here, because I didn't just injure my back once, nor twice, but three times, and so spent a good amount of time in January lying flat on my back trying to recover. But I'm delighted to say that I am finally up and about and almost pain-free. What a relief. And how much does it make you appreciate good health? Well, I hope wherever you are in the world, you are in good health. And if you are suffering, then I hope you get better soon. I feel deep empathy for you, my friends. Now, on to the subject of our Tudor history for this month's episode. Well, I think I mentioned at the end of last month's episode that I was going to be returning to Hever Castle again because when I was there last summer, not only did I have the opportunity to catch up with Dr. Owen Emerson and talk about the other Anne of Hever, and if you missed that episode, then just go back one and you'll hear us talking about the wonderful Anne of Cleves. But I took the opportunity to meet up with Kate McCaffrey, who is also assistant curator at Hever Castle. And for those of you who don't know, Kate has made the study of Anne Boleyn's Book of Hours a particularly special project. And as a consequence, she uncovered some spectacular and unexpected findings that tell us more about what might have happened to Anne's Book of Hours and, as you will hear, how a network of Kentish folk, particularly Kentish women, clearly treasured Anne's memory. So I think, without delaying things any further, we should just transport ourselves back in time to last summer when I caught up with Kate in very atmospheric thunderstorm that was raging above the castle. And I asked her all about her research, what she found, and what exactly does this tell us about this particular and very treasured artefact. So let's get straight on with the interview. Hello, Kate. Thank you so much for having us here at Hever to talk about, oh my goodness, Anne Boleyn's Book of Hours and the work and the research you've been doing. Absolutely. Thank you guys for coming. No, it's just so exciting to be able to talk about this uh, with people like you and people who are interested. It's great to share it all. Oh, well, we're going to be delving right into it. Oh, and I should say for those people listening, here we are in Hever Castle. We're in uh, Astor's private study, so it's a hidden part of the castle. And if you can hear um, the... Uh, 
a rumbling of thunder. It is the end of July, but the heavens have just opened, haven't they? They have. It's very cozy in here, though, it's with the sound effects. <laughs> very atmospheric, isn't it? It is. Anyway, we shall, we shall move on. So, first of all, would you like to introduce yourself and tell people who you are, what you do here at HEVA, and perhaps how you got involved with the research that yes, you had been course. doing? Of course, yes. So I'm actually the newly appointed, recently appointed assistant curator here at HEVA alongside the wonderful Dr. Owen Emerson. Um, and I also recently completed some really exciting research, which we'll be talking about today, into one of Anne Boleyn's books of hours that we hold here at HEVA. And that was part of my master's degree with the University of Kent. Yes. And before that, I'd actually worked uh, at the castle as part of the castle team. I've worked here for about eight years on and off uh, in between studies and school. So now I'm just back in a new capacity, really. So had you been eyeing the book of hours for some time with a, a, a kind of a yearning to delve deeper into it? I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you got going with the research. Absolutely, yes. So, I mean, I've stood next to those books in their glass cases for eight years on and off, and it's just always been a dream to actually be able to handle them in person. And Heaver and our wonderful curator, Alison Palmer, are so rightly protective over these books, so we really don't let many people handle them. Um, and I was very lucky to be able to be one of the people who was afforded that rare privilege and, and I did that thanks to, to my connections with the castle and, and to the recommendation of my supervisor in my master's degree, Dr. David Rundle. Um, and that was just such an amazing experience to be able to actually hold them in person. I mean, I've even dressed in costume as Anne before working here and I've obviously literally walked in her footsteps. So to actually be able to hold her books and, and kind of uncover this evidence has been really, really special and, and personal, I think, as well to me. And perhaps I can ask you actually, you know, what was it like the first time that you took the book in your hands and was able to look through its pages? I think just it's still, and this is still the overwhelming feeling, but just is just how surreal it was. It really, I think, is probably the most uh, sort of intimate insight and kind of most personal connection you can have with a historical figure is sort of to actually hold uh, her book and, and leaf through it. And one of our stewards here, actually, Ian Smith, who's been here for years, he particularly loves these books because he says that um, Anne's DNA are all over them. So it's, it's such a special, uh, close, I think, across centuries kind of connection to make by actually holding her kind of original books and, and reading them in that way. Absolutely. And overall, how much time do you think you actually spend physically present with the books and, and looking at them? I mean, I think initially I had about three days I spent that were kind of scheduled in for me to, to work with them uh, in January of 2020. Um, but then as I kind of uncovered this information, we realised there was more there, I was able to come back. I think maybe I'd spent maybe seven or eight days in total with the books and I photographed everything. Thankfully, it was just before the pandemic uh, hit the UK. So I was able to get in there before that and, and take photos and feel it and, and work with it in person before then. And then, um, and then after that, obviously, it's been about a year and a half since then and, and it's still ongoing, the research. You've probably spent more time with those books of hours in your hands than, than somebody for quite some time. Now, we all know about the famous inscriptions uh, in the books of hours, um, but you did find some new evidence. So maybe you could talk to us about that. Absolutely, yes. So the sort of most famous inscription and the only inscription that was previously thought to be in this particular book, our printed book of ours, was obviously Anne's herself. And that reads, remember me when you do pray, that hope doth lead from day to day, Anne Boleyn. 
Um, but I managed to actually uncover four further inscriptions within this book that had later been erased. Um, and so it's been a really rewarding, if at times frustrating, process trying to kind of uncover what these words say and what the inscriptions say. But it's another four inscriptions that I've managed to, to read and, and get partial, not full transcriptions, but partial transcriptions and at least the names of their authors as well, which has just been great. But you weren't expecting to find these, were you? No. So what was the first thing that made you think, hold on a minute, there's something else here? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a real surprise. My my supervisor calls it a moment of serendipity is what he described it as. And I think it really was. I absolutely was not expecting to to find this kind of information. It's still shocking to me, really, that it's no, so new and that nobody had realized it was there before. But it was literally just in, in the process of a close study. So I was giving the book, I think, the attention that it's lacked and that it deserves. And I was really trying to study each page in detail. And I noticed initially it just looked like um, smudges almost at the bottom of one of the pages. Mm. And I looked closer and I could almost see the kind of words forming underneath it. And so I alerted Alison, our curator, and she wasn't aware of that. And so we got a bit excited and I kept looking. Yeah, and I found then three more examples of that. And and that was sort of the beginning really, but it was, um, and they just looked like smudges really to the naked eye. Um, but yeah, then I, I actually came back with an ultraviolet light. Ah. That's why I was going to ask you. So what did you do? How did you work out what these inscriptions actually said? Yes, so I was lucky enough to actually borrow an ultraviolet light, a real industrial strength right. uh, light from Canterbury Cathedral, which was um, thanks to my connections mm. for my masters. And it was a huge, huge instrument that we brought down and we used it in one of the darkest rooms in the castle. And, and the words really did illuminate under under that light. Oh. You could sort of yeah see them shining through. and. And then I photographed them under ultraviolet light and then I used photo editing software um, to kind of clear the blur around mm -hmm. around the words and mm -hmm. and it was yeah, it was a very long process, months and months spent looking at these. Really? It yeah. took you that long to decipher exactly what was going on? Absolutely, yeah. It was it was the longest part of my research and that's why it was frustrating at times, but it was absolutely the most rewarding part as well because once you sort of figured out one letter, then you could kind of see where else that fell and, and it just kind of slowly started to fall into place. But it was a very slow process. Oh, it's, wow. Yeah, not, obviously not only early modern handwriting, but it's mm. early modern handwriting that's then been scrubbed out by someone. So it's just that much more difficult yes. to decipher. Yes. Can you, can you just recreate for us the emotion in the room when you first put the ultraviolet light? Were you on your own? Were people with you? What, what did you say? I think, well, initially I actually had a little torch ultraviolet light that I just bought quite cheaply online. Um, and that illuminated them a bit. Um, and I was with Alison, our curator, Owen was there as well for a little bit. Um, we had people kind of coming and going. There was a bit of a buzz around mm, the place when I we realised. Yeah, and we were. We obviously had no idea who'd written these inscriptions. We wondered if it was more from Anne herself or from members of her family. And mm. um, yeah, there was such a buzz. People all trying to come in and have a look. And then yeah, <laughs> I bet just, they did. Yeah, I bet so they did. It was a special moment. Well, we're going to learn a little bit more mm. about the inscriptions at the moment. In the moment, but. Just can you tell us why this is so exciting and you know what this actually does tell us about Anne Boleyn's afterlife? Yeah, of course. So I mean, I think it's really exciting because Anne's afterlife is really so clouded to us now, I think. 
as historians, we really don't have huge amounts of evidence to go on, thanks to Henry's sort of widespread um, attempts to, to erase Anne, really, from the narrative um, as he moved on to his third wife, Jane Seymour. And so I think this really does offer a rare glimpse into the fact that despite her widespread dishonouring, Anne actually did have people really loyal to her and people who she trusted, who kept her memory alive and who cherished her memory as she so sort of demands in that remember me inscription. Mm. They, they did really listen and they did keep this book and her place within the book safe. That's so beautiful, isn't mm, it's it? Really... It's very poignant. for a moment because there might be some people who don't know what a book of hours is or there may be some confusion about what a book of hours is and how it was used so maybe we should just talk about that for a moment. Yes of course yes so I mean a book of hours was I think probably could be regarded as one of the first popular texts of the middle ages it was very popular by the time that Anne owned these two books and, and very widespread they were, I think, probably best succinctly described as scriptural prayer books, which is actually the words of Eamon Duffy. And I think that really sums them up. They were, they could be very customised. Um, so you could request certain prayers to be added, certain psalms. You could request extra decoration and images of yourself or of sort of heraldic imagery in the books as well. 
But what I love in particular is that there was a real trend for this kind of written intervention in the books. Mm -hmm. So people who owned them would write in them, they'd interact with them in that way, and, and they do become really intimate insights into their individual owners thanks to this intervention. And sort of like a modern day diary, I yeah. suppose, kind of recording dates of birth and marriage and death and um, dedications to, to people close to you. So they're really our minds of information. Yeah, right. it's such personal objects. So personal. And tell us about this particular book. You know, when was it created? When do we think Anne took possession of it? Do we know? Um, all of that kind of background information around the chronology, I suppose, of this particular book. Absolutely. I mean, this particular book, the date of its production has actually been disputed by academics in the past, but I'm, I've settled on 1527 as the year of its production because it does include an almanac and a calendar for the year 1528 at the start of the book. Yeah. So that's sort of assuming it was obviously produced in time for that. Mm. Um, and it was produced in Paris. It was printed in Paris by a prolific French printer, Germain Hardouin, who, um, who was actually famous for printing books of ours, but also illuminating them. So it looks very much like this book of ours was actually printed in his workshop, but then also illuminated um, in a workshop that he oversaw. Um, so they were kind of hand paintings, but over wood or metal cut uh, printings. So it's kind of emulating manuscript culture, mm. um, but obviously for a slightly cheaper price. Yeah. So Anne's, what, 26 around this time when she yeah. owns this book? And it's quite an important part of her life because I know we don't exactly know when Henry's attention truly fell on Anne or when he that she committed to to marry him but they things were getting underway at that time weren't they Absolutely. so a lot was just about to happen yeah I think it's a really pivotal point really in sort of the changing structure of the court at that time and that's particularly interesting in a kind of another aspect of my research which we'll talk about but the link to another uh, leading lady of the time um, but it was such an important point um, in Anne's life and her star was really on the rise at this point and I think we can tell that she wrote in the book before the end of 1529 because that's when her father became the Earl of Wiltshire so she very likely would have then signed her name Roche de Rochefort, Rochford mm -hmm. um, but she obviously signs it Berlin um, so there's only sort of a small window of one or two years that she could have written this inscription. And I think we're at Hever would love to think that it was when she was here at Hever. We know she was obviously here in the summer of 1528 with the sweating sickness. Mm. And the, her kind of remember me inscription seems, I think, like something very much that you'd write if you felt like you were almost on the brink of death. Um, so that's quite a romantic Well, I'm position. glad you brought that up because mm. I wanted to ask you, you know, what's your interpretation? Was she writing this for herself? Was she writing this as a message to somebody else? I think you've partly answered now what might have stimulated that, but anything else you want to say or add yeah. to that? I mean, I think it's obviously impossible to tell exactly what was going through her mind when she wrote that, but that's certainly one possibility, I think, is if she was very ill and you sort of are suddenly faced with you, your imminent potential death, I think you start to obviously think of things in a different way and, and requesting rem remembrance or demanding remembrance as Anne does in this way, I think is something that could be tied to a moment like that. But also it's Im important to remember that, that these kind of inscriptions, these requests for remembrance weren't unusual at the time in books of ours. They were quite a kind of common formula um, and it could also have been written before she passed it on to someone, if she was passing it to someone in particular. Yes. It could have been a sort of personal request for remembrance, 
or I mean in some kind of grand way that we can associate with Anne I think perhaps it was a general request for remembrance for whoever in the future might look at the book and see her note which obviously we still do 500 oh years later. I just had shivers down my <laughs> spine uh, again. Um, so yeah now I am aware that I think you found another famous person associated with this book so maybe before we go and talk about those inscriptions that you found maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah of course so this was a really exciting aspect I think to me of, of my research and interestingly is one that's sort of been picked up on less in kind of popular attention but it's the link that this very same copy of our book of ours, of our printed book of ours, uh, another copy of the very same printing exists currently in the Morgan Library in New York and that was once previously owned by uh, Catherine of Aragon so obviously none other than the Queen of England at the time mm. and sort of greatest rival in love and power and again, coming from this time, 1527, 1528, it's a time obviously when Anne's a star is on the rise, Catherine's is on the wane. We think by this time that Henry's sort of decided his, carriage, his marriage to Catherine was over. Um, so it's a really interesting connection between these two women at such a sort of pivotal time in their lives and at a time of obviously real personal strife and turmoil. Mm. I think. I hope that it can offer a, a rare moment of unity really between these two queens who we see so often pitted against one another and, and as so opposite. Um, but it's a real tangible piece of evidence, I think, that that's, provides a very compelling image um, that Anne and Catherine, despite all of this craziness happening at this point in their lives, maybe used this same book together in probably the most peaceful of moments, which obviously was prayer. Mm. Do you think there's a possibility Catherine could have given this as a gift to Anne? I think there's definitely a possibility, yes, and it's something I'll be exploring more going forward with my research because I've got a few theories on how they could both have ended up with the same book, but it's certainly possible that, that Catherine, yes, gifted sort of a batch of these printings to members of her household because obviously Anne was one mm. of her ladies at this time, so... Mm or even maybe Henry himself gifted one to, to Catherine and Anne and other members of the household. Possibly, but, yes. Yeah, well, so. so we have to stay tuned, really, yes, and yes, follow absolutely. your research and find out what happens. <laughs> that sounds great. OK, so let's come back to the inscriptions. Yes. Tell us about those four inscriptions. Who made them and what did they say? So the names, as far as I've been able to uncover, have been the names of Gage, Shirley and West. Um, and these three family names are all connected by a fourth name, which is the Guildford family uh, from Cranbrook in Kent. So these are all uh, nobles that are local to the Berlin's at Hever. Mm -hmm. um, so it really is insightful in terms of um, opening our eyes to the really interconnected networks of local Kent gentry, and particularly local Kent gentry women, because four out of the five inscriptions were written by women. Mm. And so what emerges from that are these really female stories of, of community and solidarity and bravery. Um, and I think that's, that's something really compelling. Um, but the Gages uh, who've written in the book is John Gage, who was obviously a, a quite prominent politician uh, at the court of Henry VIII and then later at the court of Mary I. Um, and then his wife Philippa has written inside them. And then Philippa's sister, uh, Elizabeth Guildford, who married uh, Richard Shirley and became Elizabeth Shirley, has written within the book. And then we have Mary West, who I believe is either Elizabeth and Philippa's niece or their great niece. Uh, so it stayed very much within the family, sort of extended mm. Kent family, and predominantly amongst the women. Mm. And so 
they they inscribed these inscriptions around when? Was this shortly after Anne's demise? Was this, you know, within the 16th century? When, when, when were those inscriptions? So it seems very much, the, the paleography seems very much to date from sort of the mid 16th century. So it seems to be a pretty immediate response mm -hmm. to Anne's uh, downfall, or even maybe even during her lifetime. It's impossible to date them sort of certainly, mm -hmm. but I think it's, it's, the book seems to have moved quite quickly um, between amongst a generation or two rather than down generations. Um, so that in itself is quite interesting, but it was obviously passed between only very trusted connections uh, of this one family. And you mentioned the word brave. Where does brave come into this? And does this relate to actually what the inscriptions say? So I think the bravery really comes from the context of the time, which as we know, and as I've touched on, was a very much a widespread dishonouring of Anne in the years after her downfall. And I think to own anything that bore Anne's resemblance, so we see obviously the destruction or the hiding of lots of portraits of Anne, but also to own a book like this, which has her signed inscription within it, I think would have been really dangerous to own. And I think would have been seen as, as very much a sort of blatant display of disloyalty really to the king and the king's wishes. And so the fact that they kept Anne's place within the book safe and kind of harbored this secret, but also added their own notes, I think is almost generating a really female community, a safe space for this rare female expression um, and, and kept Anne safe amongst that at the heart of that. Mm, and her memory alive. What were, what were these, some of the inscriptions? Can you share what was actually written in the books? Yes, so I think, again, they seem to follow a kind of similar formula to Anne's, actually, these kind of requests for remembrance. Okay. Um, and the most legible one, the kind of full transcription, is uh, the one written by Elizabeth Shirley. And she uh, wrote a request to her good niece, Joanna, um, which could very much be Jane Dudley. It's another interesting connection. Her niece was Jane Guilford, who obviously married John Dudley and then became, you know, the Duchess and, mm -hmm. and the mother of uh, the Earl of Leicester and all these kinds of things. So that could be an interesting connection again to these kind of interconnected networks of the gentry. But they are very much requests for prayer or to remember me while you read this prayer or think of me in your prayers, um, but are generally personalised um, to the person who was going to receive it next. Yeah. Now, so you've mentioned there is more to come. You're going to be doing more research on this book. So can you tell us a little bit about where you're going to take this research? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got so many goals with this research. I think this really is just the start of things. Um, and this is obviously just, we've been talking about just the printed book, but I've not yet properly got my hands on our manuscript book of ours, which will be a whole nother um, sphere of research that I'll be going into in my new role here. Um, but for the printed book in particular, I'd love to explore the connection with Catherine more. And this is something that we will be exploring at HEVA. We're going to be doing an exhibition on this coming up um, in 2022. And we're going to be really exploring that unique connection between these two rival queens and, and other aspects that make um, them similar as well as different and remembering those common, common united, united those common united moments. Mm. Um, but in terms of the inscriptions, I'd love to look more into these individual owners and really see um, how they were connected to Anne um, further and connected to each other and, and kind of resituate the Berlins, I suppose, here at Hever as part of this network of um, owners and alliances, but also of friends. I think it's an insight into Anne's 
female friends, which we don't often hear about, really. We see her as quite isolated. No, absolutely. And you mentioned the uh, Book of Hours, which is the manuscript. Mm. What do you think that, where do you think that might take you? I mean, that one's really exciting because it already has about eight or nine inscriptions within it that are legible. They've not been erased and they have some very interesting owners, some very recognisable names have signed that book, including the names of Seymour, Parr. So we've already got three queens associated with our manuscript book of hours. Um, so I'm hoping to delve more into that um, and kind of piece together the path that that book took mm -hmm. in a similar way I've done with the printed book um, and kind of link them all to Anne and, and again look at those noble connections and, and alliances that were being formed. That does sound exciting. I think quite a few people won't be aware of some of those other inscriptions, so that's very exciting. So I can see you have your work cut out for you for <laughs> probably a few years yeah. to come, I would imagine. And um, I can only wish you an enormous amount of luck and we'll all stay tuned to find out more. But you were mentioning that there should be an exhibition here at Heva in 2022 so people will be able to come back and revisit some of the things we've been talking about here and see some of the research for themselves. Definitely yes and we'll be that won't be the only exhibition that we'll be doing on my research so we really will be exploring these themes in more detail and really showcasing I think our books as the jewels of the collection which is my humble opinion um, <laughs> that I think they really are and giving them the kind of worth and attention they deserve so absolutely people should stay tuned. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for taking time to talk to us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Psst. Before we finish the show, remember you can support my work via my Patreon programme, where various levels of sponsorship are available, starting at just $1 a month. Check out all the details of how to become a patron in the link included with this podcast. Oh, and don't forget, you can be part of my closed Facebook group, where fellow time travellers like you hang out with me and each other to share some of our favourite things about visiting the UK. From great Tudor places to visit, to the best way to take your cream tea in an afternoon. From the latest travel news to the traditional Sunday roast. So don't miss out, and you can apply to join by clicking on the link in the description. So now it's back to close the show. Well, isn't that wonderful when a piece of research unexpectedly turns up something like that that takes you on a real adventure in time? It's a massive congratulations to Kate and we'll all have to stay tuned to see what else she unearths from these magnificent artefacts. And in fact, I have an update on that exhibition that Kate was mentioning at the end of our interview. That, in fact, will now take place next year in 2023. So do keep an eye out for that. And while I'm here talking about exhibitions at HEVA, I just thought I'd give a sneaky shout out to this year's exhibition, which I'm sure many of you will be interested in. Of course, it is the 500th anniversary of Anne's first recorded appearance at the English court as part of the Chateau Vert pageant or mask. And in celebration of that, Heva are having an exhibition called Becoming Anne, Connections, Culture and Court, which is all about the early influences that shaped Anne as the woman that she would become. And that is going to be running from March uh, through to, I think, November time. So the whole of the season. So do try and pop in and see that if you can. 
Okay, now I also wanted to mention that if you enjoyed this audio, but you'd like to see Kate and I in conversation, then when I was at Heva, we also videoed the chat. And so if you head over to my uh, new and second YouTube channel called Tudor Talk, which is specifically reserved for my conversations with historians and bloggers and authors who are interested in Tudor history, then head on over to there and you will be able to see that video. You could either just head on to YouTube and search for Tudor Talk or you can check out the link in the description below. I'll make sure that I put that in there for you as an easy way of accessing the video. Okay, well, I think that's all for this month's episode. Next month, of course, I'll be back, but I'll be back with something completely different. Another adventure from the road, but an entirely different topic and place. So I look forward to sharing that with you. I have to say, as we return in March and spring is about to spring forth here in the Northern Hemisphere, it's always a particularly exciting time for me. I can feel the sap rising and I can feel myself getting excited by all the different uh, trips and adventures and podcasts and videos that lie ahead over the spring and summer months. So I hope you're feeling the same. I know if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, of course, you're heading into winter, my commiserations, if that's not your thing. Um, but here I've for a long and dreary and dark winter. Oh, spring is always most welcome. So I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Bye for now. for tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is happy time travelling. <laughs>